Hey, I know you don't smoke weed. I know this. But I'm gonna get you high today. Because it's Friday, you ain't got no job, and you ain't got shit to do. Get out of here, Dewey. What are y'all doing in here? We're smoking reefer. And you don't want no part of this shit. You're smoking reefers? Yeah, of course we are. Can't you smell it? No, Sam. I can't. Come on, Dewey. Join the party. No, Dewey. You don't want this. Get out of here. You know what? I don't want no hangover. I can't get no hangover. It doesn't give you a hangover. Well, I get addicted to it or something? It's not habit forming. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I don't want to overdose on it. You can't OD on it. It's not going to make me want to have sex, is it? It makes sex even better. Sounds kind of expensive. It's the cheapest drug there is. Hmm. You don't want it. I think I kind of want it. <laughs> all right, all you movie junkies. It is time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 124 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this, of course, would be naturally the Palestinian Territories episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that the Palestinian Territories ranks number 124 in world population. That's right, folks. And with that little bit of populist knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And sitting in a little storage shed on the remnants of the recalled X-ray camcorders created by Sony would be... Uh, hello. My name is Brian Williams. (laughs) Tim couldn't be on the show this evening he had to take a vacation to the stars how are you matt did you enjoy your quality time with your family at walt disney world in orlando florida well see i have a problem believing that this is really brian williams for two reasons one apparently he lies a lot and two he's supposed to be suspended right now well i am not the brian williams (laughs) Brian Williams. <laughs> the normal Brian Williams is I. Let, let me just uh let me just help everybody out here. In case you haven't figured out, we typically record on Monday nights. Uh we're back on our regular schedule, and this being a Monday, uh it also happens to be the remaining hours of April the twentieth. I believe some people call it four twenty. I was really hoping that you would dig my super cool factoid about Sony this week, but no. You came in with this Brian Williams. What what are you talking about, Matt? I mean, how do you not immediately ask about recalled x-ray camcorders? I don't, you know. Well, why would you want a x-ray camcorder, Matt? I didn't. Sony made them. But 
You brought it up. What would you do with an x-ray camcorder? <laughs> uh, I would probably use it to take x-rays. Would you go to yoga studios and use it to watch the women? Sadly, that's exactly what happened with <laughs> So basically what happened was, back in 1998, Sony makes these uh, camcorders that have night vision on them. And the night vision mode <laughs> could actually see through clothing <laughs> because dark clothes would be exposed as infrared light and <laughs> you could see through them all. So yeah, those uh, nice dark yoga pants would definitely um, not be there. And even though they sold 700,000 of these wonderful things, uh, they did do a recall on them. Do you, do you want to know what Brian Williams would use that Sony X-ray camcorder to look at? Do you want to know, Matt? Um, would he use them at uh, crochet? Would he look, use them to look at crochet thongs? Yes. <laughs> look at those pictures, Matt, and tell us what you see. They're crochet thongs, but for men. So they they are uniquely equipped. To look like a ball sack. And yet they hold more than the uh, testicles there, apparently. I have a lot of free time on my hands now. <laughs> Do, oh, wait, so you invented these? <laughs> yes. Doesn't it scream Brian Williams? Yeah, it it does. Oh, okay, well, Tim's back. Wow, Brian Williams. You asshole. How's it going, Matt? Um, <laughs> I think it's going to be going a little bit better now. Well, Matthew, so you were at Disney World. How did that go? Did anything fun and exciting things happen? Because, of course, I mean, that's what you got to, that's a transition from crocheted banana hammocks. You go right into Disney World. Right. Well, I mean. And the experience the you had with your grandfather and your daughter. Well, it was my dad and my daughter. That's what I meant. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, that would have been kind of creepy to drag my one of my dead grandfathers along. But Disney brings out the life of anyone. It brings it brings out the kid in anyone. Um, no, it was really uh, a lot of fun. We definitely we managed to squeeze in a whopping thirty four miles worth of walking while we were there. Um, we. Hit all of the parks. Uh, my daughter got to see tons of princesses and characters. She got the pictures and the whole nine, and the signatures and all that kind of stuff. She got to ride on her favorite ride was the uh, Big Thunder Mountain roller coaster and everything. So, yeah, I mean, she definitely had a good time. And then, of course. Dad and I had a good time because we went and ate at like the really nice places. Do you have like an elderly pet name for your dad? Do you call him Pappy? Or did you always grow up calling him Dad or Papa or Sir? <laughs> and did what, did he ever refer to you as his little Pepito? Because uh, I've that, seen childhood pictures of you and you could have easily that, that, been called Pepito. That, that that would be a negatory good buddy. Um, ah, it was pretty much just dad, 
Uh, I assume when I was probably like four or five, he was probably still daddy, but you know, now he's just dad. Uh, for the kids, he's granddaddy, I guess, if that's, you know, we, 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 we do that route. Does your dad call any of the kids little Pepito or Pepita? No, he does not. Sounds like somebody's failing as a grandfather. Totally not fun, I guess. You know, <laughs> just free trips to Disney World. That's all he does. I'm sorry, I know. You know. I'm just <laughs> jealous. That's it. Just jealous. I'm telling you. Yeah. But oh, we also got to go to the Club Cool in Epcot, which I had <laughs> never even heard of. Club um, Cool. Oh yes. It's, like, it's, was it chilly? Was it was it cool because of the temperature, or was uh, it like? I think it's yeah. I think the idea is that it's it you know it's nice and air conditioned inside, so when it's very hot outside, you go inside, and then they have uh, free samples of crack. Uh, no, various Coca Cola products from around the world. Really? And the most infamous one is this one from Italy called Beverly. And it is just this, like, it's it's just bitter. And I don't mean, like, grapefruit bitter or anything. I mean, it's just straight. It's got this, like, nasty, bitter, just, I, I that's the best way I can describe it. It's just this bitter carbonated thing. And it's not like... It's not like seltzer water, how sometimes seltzer water has uh, just a just kind of a harsh bite to it because of the, you know, nature that it's carbonated. I mean, this stuff is like, it's got this just unnatural bitter taste. And it's like one of the most popular non-alcoholic drinks in Italy, apparently. So, Your bitter is so bitter, it tastes unnatural. I'm telling you. And then they had, but they had stuff from like Greece and South Africa, Japan... Um, South America, you know, a couple other places. Now, which country tastes the worst in Coca-Cola form? Oh, definitely the uh, Italian one. There is just no, yeah, hands down. Really? I, I, yeah, I would probably say that my two favorites were, um, I think this Japanese one had this, uh, Japanese had like, like this apple one, and then uh, South Africa had this one, it was... Kind of like strawberry would be the best way. It, it doesn't taste exactly like strawberry, um, but it it was it'd be the best thing I could think of would be kind of like a cross between a strawberry and a raspberry, and it was really really good. That would definitely be my favorite. But the apple one from uh, Japan was also pretty tasty. I'm salivating over here. That sounds absolutely delicious. Yeah, if you go to Epcot, anybody, if you go to Epcot, stop by the Club Cool and check it out. There's actually somebody on, I watched a video uh, a couple, like, a couple weeks ago, because I had only just found out about it, like, two or three weeks ago, right before we left. Uh, there was somebody who basically, I don't know if it was a dare or just because they felt like being stupid and putting it on YouTube, but they literally tried to drink, I want to say it was like a hundred shots of the Beverly thing. They were trying to get through a hundred shots. Uh, because you just basically you take you know like a little cup and you pop it out from the little dispenser and it's like a I don't know like a two or three ounce cup and you just hit it up you know you hit the little push button and it dispenses two or three ounces right into that cup and then you drink it and you you know so you could keep doing that for as long as you want and uh, yeah so I want to say he tried to get through like a hundred shots and he just ends up vomiting all over the place so yeah. I'm sure they were really I like these conversations. Please, describe to me more delicious treats. 
<laughs> so, well, I, yeah, the, the, I don't know. We, we used, uh, we, we were able to do pretty much everything that Chloe wanted to do, um, which included virtually the entirety of Future World and Epcot. And we managed to do it with no fast passes, starting at around 3 o'clock in about 4 hours and 22 minutes. Which is pretty impressive, I gotta say. That, that, we were, we were using some technology there. So did you two have like one of those moments that any perfect family would ever have at a Disney theme park where the daughter or the son, the child looks up at their, hopefully they're looking up at their parent and not some stranger and they say, this is so magical. I will remember this forever. Did that happen for you at all? Because I would no, think that would be like five. the ultimate. I mean, you know. She's five? Well, she, yeah. hey, if she meant it, if she felt it, she would have expressed it. No, I could, um, it was the things that she would just keep on talking about. That was the, how, those were the things that I knew that she, they were like, you know, really indelible and definitely a part of her. Uh, but honestly, I think the, <laughs> the funniest thing, aside from her favorite ride being, the big thunder mountain and everything she she loved test track and stuff so she would talk she talks about her purple car that she designed for test track uh, a lot but i think really and truly at the end of the day her absolute favorite thing that she has taken back and remember is this little chloe necklace that my dad bought for her while we were in magic kingdom and it just you know just says chloe it's got a little mickey ear right above the e or you know mickey ears kind of thing right above the e and i mean she has worn it non-stop we make her take it off when she goes to bed so she doesn't actually you know like rip it or you know break it or something while she's sleeping or tangle it up cool but, oh man she goes everywhere yeah. with this thing until you ground her and take it away from her she becomes resentful and angry <laughs> yeah god damn it daddy you remember that time you bought me that necklace and then you took it away all because Billy wanted to love me. It's exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> In three years. <laughs> three years. All right. <laughs> I'm look out for somebody named Billy when <laughs> my daughter turns eight. Outstanding. So, Matthew, I remember you saying earlier that you had some news of the weird. Yeah. And here we are, 14 minutes later, and I think that this whole damn thing's been weird so far. But since we've been talking about Disney, why not just keep on talking about Disney? My news of the weird comes to us from the Inquisitor.com. And, um, this is courtesy of, uh, Danny Cox. Now, here we go. It says, woman, Suing Disney claims that they implanted her with a chip. Truth, people, truth. Disney. Now, don't get me wrong. I like the little the little magic band, right? That's got a you know that's got a chip in it, but you know it's not on. You know, like they can take it off, right? Yeah, it says that uh, many people believe that Disney has some type of hold or power over them because they keep wanting to go back again and again. 
They know in reality that they just enjoy the experience, but one West Virginia woman feels differently about it. She is suing Disney because she claims that the company implanted a chip in her body. According to the New York Daily News, the woman states that Disney somehow implanted a, quote, D-chip, end quote, into her body at some point. The woman's name is <laughs> Julie Lynn Hooker. And she is from Chloe, West Virginia. <laughs> I'm telling you. That's where they all come from. If you want to find a Judy Lynn Hooker, you just go to West frickin' Virginia. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, her lawsuit has been filed against the Walt Disney Corporation. And this ought to tell you just exactly how uh, legit this lawsuit is. It's been filed against... The Walt Disney Corporation, and that is the name constantly used in her complaint. The actual name of the corporation is the Walt Disney Company. So maybe she went to some weird version of a Disney World run by this said Walt Disney Corporation, and that's where the mix-up is happening? I don't know. Has she watched that Escape from Tomorrowland movie? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> Maybe. Because this woman is nuttier than a goddamn squirrel turd. I'm telling you, this is, uh, Hooker states that she doesn't know how it was done, or when it was done, or why it was done, but she knows it happened. And she, she stands for all the hookers. <laughs> That's right. And not the just world. the ones for Hillary. Uh, she found a chip made of rubber material implanted into her body. As the West Virginia record stated, Hooker states that the so-called D-chip was placed into her body without her knowledge or consent. After finding the D-chip, Hooker claims she was able to find out more about it. She states that she has gathered intelligence from those who actually operate the D-chip, which was planted inside of her. Hmm. I wonder if she accidentally ate something that was like something from Disney that had, you know, was in, in the shape of a D, like a plastic thing, and she just pooped it out. And that was her way of discovering it inside of her body. Like, oh yeah. man, I'm having trouble going to the bathroom. And like, oh, what, what's this? It's, it's a D. It is a chip made out of rubber. Mm hmm. Oh, it gets better though. Oh, there's more to it. Oh, God, yes. yes oh, yes. wow. It's great. It's great. Um, upon getting further information, she has come to find out that the D-chip is owned and sponsored by the, quote, Walt Disney Corporation slash Enterprise, end quote, per her pending lawsuit. This information has been enough for her to find that Disney is at fault and to blame, not just at fault, but at fault and to blame for the chip that was implanted. Now, you must understand that Julie Lynn Hooker is the plaintiff and will be representing herself in the case, which had the original complaint filed last month in a Kanawha... Kan Kanawha? What? I don't even know how to say this. K-A-N-A-W-H-A. Kanawha? I guess we'll just go with that. Kanawha oh, Kanawha. Sure. Circuit Judge Carrie Webster has had the case assigned to her, and I am sure she is oh so happy about that. Hooker is seeking monetary damages from Disney and has asked that the chip be removed from her body. Now, uh, to the point of this article, it says that Disney had yet to comment or even acknowledge that the lawsuit had been filed against them. 
There you go. A little bit of news of the weird for you. That that was a lot. <laughs> that was a big one. Yeah. Wow. It, it was. It was. But I thought it was good. I thought it was good. Next week on the SLS cast, Matt and Tim will discuss all the penises that Tim saw in Seattle. Tune in next time, episode 125 of the SLS cast. That should be our bonus segment, since we still don't know what a bonus segment is next week. That should be our bonus segment. It might be a, a very short... A discussions with Matt and Tim about... about penis and genitalia? About the penises, about the penises <laughs> that Tim... Did you go to an, an all-male version of this coffee shop? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not by choice. <laughs> Uh, so they were not wearing their, uh, uniforms consisting of crocheted, uh, you know, whatever it was that you showed me, crocheted banana hammocks. If that, if that, (laughs) no, yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm, I'm talking about fucking sandblasters all over the place. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well then let's go ahead (laughs) and get to the news. What do you say, sir? All right, so first up from me. From the independent.co.uk, courtesy of Heather Saul, Alan Rickman admits editing terrible script with friends in Pizza Hut behind backs of writers on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That's right, folks. Alan Rickman has admitted to going behind the backs of script writers and rewriting lines with the help of his friends for his BAFTA-winning performance in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. The British actor made the admission as he spoke on stage at the BAFTA headquarters at an event celebrating his career. Rickman, who played Severus Snape in the Harry Potter series, undertook the role of the malevolent sheriff in the 1991 blockbuster Robin Hood. Speaking on stage, he told the audience that one conversation in the terrible, quote, terrible, unquote, script with two women was actually the work of his friends Ruby Wax and Peter Barnes. Rickman said he met Barnes in a branch of Pizza Express, according to the Times. Quote, I said, will you have a look at the script because it's terrible and I need some good lines. So he did. And, you know, with kind of pizza and bacon and egg going all over the script. End quote. Barnes then edited a scene where his character uh, would have been running down a corridor telling him, quote, you should have a wench in a doorway and then you should say, you, my room, 1030, and then turn to the other wench and say, you, 1045. End quote. He said Wax later added, quote, and bring a friend, end quote. The lines were then secretly added in by director Kevin Reynolds. Quote, nobody knew this was happening except him. Quote, end quote, Rickman continued, quote, and I knew it had worked because as I cleared the camera, I saw about 80 members of the crew miming, trying not to laugh, end the quote. End all quotes there. So what do you think? Uh, Tim was, I, I gotta say, I think Alan Rickman was pretty smart. I mean, I'm more amazed that Alan Rickman actually goes to Pizza 
expresses and <laughs> sits there with the common folk and enjoys pizza and egg, apparently, and bacon. So, well, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, what do you have for us, sir? Um, first for me. Well, the Academy Award nominated film for Best Picture, Best Actor, and Supporting Actor, and whatnot, uh, Furious Seven just broke a world record. It is the fastest movie in history, in history, to gross one billion dollars worldwide. Okay, and uh, just keep in mind that domestically, uh, Fast and F- or Fear Seven only has brought in two hundred and sixty-five point three million. I say only, but that is nothing compared to the seven hundred and thirty-five point two million dollars that it made overseas. And it says here in the ScreenCrush.com article, the previous benchmark for the fastest $1 billion gross was 19 days, a mark shared by three films, The Avengers, Avatar, and Harry Potter, and The Deathly Hallows Part 2. That's exciting. Exciting. Next stop, actually, it's another benchmark. This one on YouTube. It's a trailer for Star Wars The Force Awakens. Within a single day, this trailer acquired 88 million views. That's within a 24-hour period. And you might think, oh, that's, you know, 88 million's not too high. Too high. Too high. Too high. Au contraire. Au contraire. Turns out that Furious 7 garnered 62 million views within a 24-hour period. That was the previous uh, title... Older. After that, you have Avengers Age of Ultron, 34 million within a 24-hour period. 34 million views within a 24-hour period. That is crazy. That is insane. And I think that goes to prove how amazingly well Star Wars The Force Awakens will be uh, whenever it comes out in December. So, Matt, anything about these two pieces, bits and pieces and pieces and bits of... Uh, World record-breaking news. Bits and bits and bits. Uh, nope. Fantastic. All right. Well, then I guess I'll just keep going then. All right, from abcnews.go.com, courtesy of Lindsay Barr from the AP. Uh, Mark Hamill said he was, quote, suspicious, end quote, of Star Wars director J.J. Abrams. Yeah, Mark Hamill knew he had to say yes when George Lucas told him about the plans to move forward with a new Star Wars trilogy. Quote, it's not like a choice. It's like I was drafted. Could you imagine if for some reason I said, I don't think I want to do it? I would have all of you surrounding my house like villagers, angry villagers with lightsabers instead of torches. End quote, joked the 63-year-old Star Wars veteran. Uh, in this was, of course, being told to a massive crowd at uh, Star Wars Celebration. <sighs> yeah, Hamill admitted he was caught off guard when Lucas invited him to lunch. When Hamill's wife su- surmised that perhaps there was a new film in the works, Hamill laughed. Uh, Lucas had told him specifically that he was done making Star Wars movies after the prequels. Still, his interest was piqued when Lucas disinvited Hamill's daughter. He knew that it must be big. When things started coming together, Hamill said he was cautiously optimistic about J.J. Abrams, the chosen director for The Force Awakens. Quote, 
I was a little suspicious because he was a Star Trek guy, end quote, said Hamill laughing. The actor quickly clarified that he likes Star Trek. So, what do you think, sir? He, he, um... He he does talk about the teaser that was released that you referenced at uh, 88 million views and everything. Um, but, uh, yeah. He, he also referred to the fact that J.J. Abrams was the, kind of the first fan-born director for Star Wars, which I think is pretty interesting. And, of course, touched on the use of real sets and, you know, all the kind of practical effects, which we've already discussed. So... Um, well, it's a good thing J.J. Abrams is actually a fan of Star Wars, unlike Star Trek, where he openly admitted that he was not a fan of, of, of the TV show at all. So, Mark Hamill is a smart guy, and I think if Mark Hamill decided to do the movie, I think it's going to be a pretty good movie. Right on. All right, sir, what else you got for us? All right, uh, Joss Whedon news here. He's getting sued from io9.com. Author suing Joss Whedon claims Cabin in the Woods is based on his book. This is written by Lauren Davis. This is from uh, April 15th, so last week-ish. And it says this. The Cabin in the Woods was one of the most original takes on the kids encounter scary things in the woods story that we've seen in ages. But one man is claiming that it's not original at all. Author Peter Gallagher is suing the filmmakers, claiming that the film is infringing on his 2006 novel, The Little White Trip, A Night in the Pines. Spoiler alert here for all you folks who have not seen Cabin in the Woods yet. If not, I'm probably ranting for a little while, so skip ahead with caution. Continuing, The Hollywood Reporter snagged Gallagher's complaint for copyright infringement, which he filed against Lionsgate Entertainment, Mutant Enemy, The Cabin in the Woods co-writer Joss Whedon, and co-writer and director Drew Goddard. And you could, there's a link here if you want to read the, uh, the complaint itself. But they continue with, It's hard to say how profound these similarities are without reading the book. But Gallagher's complaint lists two dozen side-by-side, including similarities between some of the names in The Little White Trip. For example, the female character, one blonde, one brunette, are named Jules Indura, and they visit a cabin called Brinkley House. In The Cabin in the Woods, the female characters, one blonde, one brunette, are named Julie and Dana, and they visit a cabin called the Buckner House. In both books, the five protagonists receive a dire warning before arriving at the cabin, rummage through the cabin's storage area, drink and flirt, and are subsequently terrorized by murderous forces. Both the book and the film contain a twist as well. In The Little White Trip, it turns out that the kids are being manipulated in film for reality TV show. In The Cabin in the Woods, they're also being manipulated and filmed, but as part of a secret ritual to appease horrific cosmic forces. And that's what makes an assessment of Gallagher's claims based on the complaint alone so difficult. Yes, there are a number of at least skeletal similarities between the two works, but the point of The Cabin in the Woods is that it utilizes a ton of classic horror tropes in order to tear them apart. We haven't gotten a chance to read the book, but it may be that the tropes the two works employ line up by sheer coincidence. We'll have to see if this lawsuit ends up moving forward and what happens if judges start weighing in on the merits of the case. All quotes 
in there. Matt, what do you think? Is this infringement? Does it sound like infringement to you? Based on these two little facts? Mm, I don't know. I think it... I think it could be successfully argued. I, I have a feeling this one will probably be settled. I don't think it'll make it to court, but I don't think it's going to be dismissed either. I think there will be a settlement. Find out on next week's episode. Because, you know, I'm sure that'll be all solved by then. It will. <laughs> We're promising you that. It will. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, last but not least for me, from Collider.com, courtesy of Perry Nemiroff. Tron 3. Olivia Wilde says story follows Quora in the real world confirms filming plans. That's right. Collider's been talking about Tron 3 ever since Tron Legacy hit theaters back in December of 2010. But it wasn't until last month that it started to seem like a third installment would actually happen. Uh, there were rumors about it, and then uh, Production Weekly tweet specified an early October start. Um, it was also found out that Garrett Hedlund and Olivia Wilde were expected to reprise their roles. But nothing that was confirmed by Disney. However, uh, Collider did an interview with Olivia Wilde, and they were talking with her about the premiere of uh, Meadowland at the Tribeca Film Festival. And she happened to confirm that the movie will begin shooting in Vancouver in October. She also um, admitted to having read a script when she was asked if she'd read a script, quote, I have, I have, end quote, and that um, she goes into quite a bit of detail about how she worked with Joe Kaczynski to really flesh out the character of Cora and, you know, give her a clear direction uh, versus what was just kind of written initially into the script and how the character could develop throughout the, throughout the film and going forward. Um, so she was really excited to kind of work on this. They said she, she also intimated that the story was really the holdup. It was never, um, it was never a monetary thing or a question of availability or scheduling. They just, no one really had a good story to, to base the script off of. So, um, it's an interesting short little interview, so if you want to read it, definitely do so. I will just close it out by saying that, again, Disney has yet to confirm that the film is actually happening, but Wild certainly makes it seem like the studio and everyone involved is eager to get going. Hopefully we'll get an, uh, an official announcement and perhaps a release date in the near future. Um, as a personal fan of Tron Legacy, uh, I, I admit it has its flaws. It's not the best movie ever but i did enjoy it and i was looking forward to it it did make enough money uh to warrant a sequel and i was at this point starting to wonder if it was ever going to happen so um yeah i'm excited i i don't know what about you tim do do would you even do you even care do you, do you want to see a sequel to tron legacy or i totally zoned out so uh could you repeat everything that you just said no. All right. So, <laughs> closing out the movies. Do you got any other news then? Or uh, yeah, I do. Um, I'm I'm kidding. I didn't zone out. Yeah, I I'm too looking forward to the next Da Vinci Code sequel book. I think Tom Hanks is going to do great. Still, don't worry. Outstanding. Uh, okay. Uh, next up, I just want to mention these three before I get to 
just, I mean, I'm just going to mention the titles of them because, I mean, there's nothing really to talk about. Uh, Captain American Civil War will be the first Marvel movie to be shot on IMAX. That is exciting. Um, Daredevil will be, uh, actually, Daredevil is going to be Netflix's, I guess, flagship uh, series to include blind audio description tracks for uh, blind folks who want to enjoy these movies or uh, well, actually movies and TV shows via Netflix, along with all of us folk. So that's pretty cool. Sony and MRC are finally getting the Dark Tower shit together, and they're going to be making a film franchise include a tie-in TV series as well. And this has been uh, being talked about for years. Like Remember, like, 2007, 2008, they've been talking about a Dark Tower adaptation. So, yeah, I mean, this is real shit here. This is via Deadline. They have... Uh, People actually talking about it, the writers and producers, and Stephen King is excited as well. He's read the scripts and he's dug it and he's excited. He's glad it's not going to be just a trilogy of three movies. They're going to have the tie-in tie-in TV series to expand the stories and hopefully do it right. Um, and lastly, here I just want to mention this article from io9.com: Ten Ways to Create a Near Future World That Won't Look too dated. And I know this is going to appeal to all you 420ers out there. Uh, this is written by Charlie Jank Anders. Um, the name's not going to appeal to you guys, but I think this article will, because along with what it's talking about, they have uh, they have pictures to look at to describe, you know, as a, as a description of what they mean by, number one, avoid brand names and current pop references. You know, sometimes it works. It's like in Blade Runner, which I think is interesting. They, well, I knew about this, but they mentioned it here that one of the best shots in Blade Runner is that huge Coca-Cola ad on the side of that building. You know, yes, that's product placement, but that is like a super well-known piece of product placement that will tr- transcend onto the rest of time, I'm sure, because I doubt Coca-Cola will go away, especially at Disney World. Uh, number two here, they say, make it radically weird in some ways, but familiar in other ways. Um, again, this is from the article, 10 Ways to Create a Near Future World That Won't Look Too Dated. I'm just going to mention one more. Pay attention to demographic trends, not just social ones. That's exciting. And there's a lot more here, as well as paragraphs to back up these little steps that I highly recommend. Again, this is from io9.com, 10 Ways to... Tim Ways? It could be Tim Ways to Create a Near Future World That Won't Look Too Dated. That's cool, too. Matt, what are your 10 ways to create a near-future world that won't look too dated? I know you are uh, very knowledgeable of this subject, and I know you know you, you have 10 steps right now that you are ready to tell our favorite listener and explain in detail. I, I really don't. Yours sound great. They do. They, they sound perfect. All right, are we ready to move on? To our next wonderful little segment, since we haven't had a bonus segment in like two weeks now. Alright, well then, let's do it, folks. Ending the news and moving into... Three Squared! Alright, so our segment, our our Three Squared, is basically um, an underrated actor, male or female, though this time we happen to both choose male. So I'm thinking... That are serious, truly, next week's bonus segment will probably just, we should do actress next week. 
I think would be logical. But it's our favorite underrated actor, and kind of choosing three different movies that best represent them, uh, and why uh, and why we feel they're underrated. All right, so I have chosen Josh Hartnett. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the 38-year-old, oh, I'm sorry, the 36-year-old actor uh, from Minnesota. And um, you're kind of like going, wait a minute, you're talking about the dude from The Faculty? Wait, are you talking about the same guy who did 40 Days and 40 Nights? And I'm like, yes, yes, that's the guy. The very same guy who did Pearl Harbor. Yes, this the, the same one who did The Virgin Suicides. Yes. But this guy really does have amazing acting chops. And I just, and while he has definitely done some stinkers and some hits that you're still trying to figure out how they became hits. I've got to point you to three great flicks that star Josh Hartnett. First, I'm just doing these in chronological order because it just kind of seems the best way to do that. First up in the ensemble cast from 2005, Sin City. Now, his role is small in this film, but it's everything that he brings to the screen in his limited time there just shows you exactly what kind of... what what he can evoke with just a look, with actual character, with things that he actually has to do and say without having a lot... without having a lot to say or being able to say because there's no, not much in the script. Um, I really think that his narration adds to it. I think that just his ambiance and especially the way the last time you see his character as well in the film, um, really, it wasn't just about being part of the ensemble or, and, and not even, especially because he was not directly related more or less to the stories. He was kind of like a bridge between them. And I really just think it, helps to have such a strong presence be an anchoring uh, character to the entire film. So I do love that role. Sin City, amazing, yes. And then shortly after that, we've got 2006's Lucky Number Slevin. Now this is an over-the-top kind of action thriller, and it stars, of course, Bruce Willis uh, and... Josh Hartnett, along with Ben Kingsley and a few other wonderful people. But it's he just has kind of this natural balance between jaded hitman and youthful free spirit. And it's the way he has to balance these two sides of this particular character. And both accomplish what needs to happen, but preserve the part of himself that wants to live and love. It's just really interesting how it plays out by the end of the film. He does a really great job. The film is really fun to watch as well, and has a just a, a really great ending. So I would definitely encourage anyone to watch that, and then you will sit there and go... 
oh, okay, well, that makes movies like 40 Days and 40 Nights are like, oh, okay, well, I guess I can forgive that. But I think um, probably his best performance for me is from 2007's 30 Days of Night. Now, this is a vampire film, takes place in Alaska, and is based on a graphic novel. And holy crap, is it just, I mean, it's the right amount of scary, it's the right amount of violent, and it's the right amount of poignant throughout. And he is the anchor. He is literally the driving force of the entire film. And not only is it great to look at, not only is it really stylized and rightfully so, but he is just on screen. He's literally a force to be reckoned with. And I just, I think it's great. I think he does an amazing job and really brings out the role of the sheriff um, in a way I don't think really anybody, especially at that time, could have done. Um, so, yeah, Josh Hartnett. You really should check out his stuff if you haven't. Um, and again, I point to Sin City, Lucky Number Slevin, and 30 Days of Night. So there you go, Tim. I hope you've had enough time to chew and swallow your, quote, not THC-laced, end quote, cotton candy. Train Spotting is a movie <laughs> about happy things. And it features... The subject of my underrated actor in cinema history, not the, but one of the underrated actors of cinema history, and that would be Ewan McGregor. That's right. He is the Scottish-born Ewan McGregor, born in 1971 on March the 31st, actually in Perth, Petshire, Scotland, UK. So, same area, I guess. And he's been in so many excellent films that I love. I mean, let's be honest here. One of them, in addition to playing a great leading man, he knows how to play a great side character. Not necessarily a side character, but a great supporting role. There we go. A great, a great supporting character as well. And one of the reasons that could be attributed to that is his style of acting. He's a very honest character. He doesn't try to go over-the-top dramatic whenever he is playing a dramatic role. There is definitely elements of humanity in all of his roles, um, not only for drama, but as well as comedy. He can insert those uh, little human uh, quality or, or, or uh, those, uh, yeah, those human qualities, such as comedy during a dramatic event, into his characters, which, make it, which makes it, again, that much more appealing and interesting and intriguing. And honestly, I will watch anything that he is in other than Mordecai. He's even Jesus Christ in a movie that has not been officially released yet, which I haven't seen yet. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. But it's Last Days in the Desert. So look forward to that. But the three movies that I chose, actually a few movies that I didn't choose uh, as I guess honorable mentions. One of them is Beginners, which Chris Plummer won the award for that movie. He was excellent in that. Uh, the Impossible, which just recently came out about the uh, the the uh, the tsunami. He was nominated for the Academy Award, but uh, Naomi Watts, who played the wife, she was nominated for the Academy Award that year. But he was, you know, deserved it. You have Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. That is a romantic comedy for the ladies. But you know what? He can do those kind of movies. Um, that reminded me of. A great film of his. I, I, I mean, Matt really liked it. I thought it was good because I liked the style of, uh, of of the technique, the filming technique that they used for that movie. But Down With Love, you know, uh, its take on romant- a rom-com 1960s flick. 
Uh, but again, those aren't the movies that I chose. The three movies that I chose that I think best represents the career of Ewan McGregor from Perth, Scotland. First one being, I think, his breakout role, and that is Train Spotting from 1996. The 94 minute rated R flick directed by Danny Boyle, which also, uh, Danny Boyle was put on the map here in the U.S. because of Train Spotting. This one is very interesting movie because you think it's a movie that glorifies drugs, but it takes a very horrific, dramatic turn within 20, 25 minutes of the movie to where the movie is still fun and energetic, but there's definitely layers of horror that you notice. In this film, he plays Renton. He is a young lad who is so in tune with the Scottish drug culture, drugs uh, that the drug of choice there, I guess, is uh, or was heroin. And he finally hits a wall to where he wants to get out of that culture and actually clean up, do something with his life. The unfortunate thing is that he is the only one out of the entire group of his buddies that actually wants to do this successfully. And every time he tries to break away from this culture, he kind of get he gets pulled back into it. Really, to be honest, it's Ewan McGregor that holds this movie together. Yes, there are other great performances and uh, great characters, but it's it's his. He is the ground. He is one of the most, probably the grounded character in this movie. You know, one of the only grounded characters in this movie. You know, you see him having fun. You actually see a uh, a shift in his lifestyle, like what he what, like his uh, his view on life. You know, there is actually character progression. You see it, and you see him struggle. And I don't know if this movie really portrays drug, you know, heroin addiction accurately as to, I mean, I'm sure the process is, is long, but man, he hits all the right notes, I think, to really drive the point of this movie across to where, as I mentioned before, at first you think it's glorifying, you know, the use of drugs. Like, oh, hey, look how fun it is. Look how, you know, look at these great times that these uh, these folks are having doing this. And then you realize, oh, shit, maybe not. Uh, people could you know, overdose and die from this. So maybe, you know, shouldn't do it. So that's a nice little Catch-22 type of flick. Uh, the next Ewan McGregor film is Tim Burton's 2003, I guess, I consider more of an adventure film than a drama, like a f- adventure fantasy, but it's Big Fish. Ewan McGregor plays a younger version of Albert Finney, and the character is Ed Bloom. And the movie is about this guy, the son, Billy Crudup, starts spending more time with his father because his father is slowly, I guess, dying. And Billy Crudup wants to hear more about his father's life because he grew up with his father telling him these crazy, over-the-top, tall tales, well, actually what he thinks are tall tales. And so he wants to hear the truth for a change. And as Albert Finney regales these tales of his life. Uh, the movie then goes into the glorious flashbacks where, you know, that's where Ewan McGregor pops up. And he is fantastic. He is the romantic. He has the comedic chops. He's a good-looking guy. He is absolutely perfect. He plays, like, the the, 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 the one of the most wonderful, like, all-American type guys. And I feel that this movie is so well-made that it doesn't get as much 
respect as as I think that it deserves because this is I think this was Tim Burton's last fantastic film and here it came out 12 years ago and again you know Ewan McGregor I mean he had great supporting actors around him but he was fantastic and then lastly the film that he was supporting actor to Jim Carrey one of my fa- actually my favorite Jim Carrey film of all time is I Love You Philip Morris from 2009 and this is a true story about a poli- a police officer a police officer named Stephen Russell who decides that he wants to quit <laughs> Uh, being a police officer, and at the same time, he decides to become gay. Or not become gay, but to actually like come out of the closet. And he has small kids, he has a wife, he is one of the church leaders and whatnot, and he basically leaves that life behind and go, uh, he lives, you know, uh, goes on to living this over-the-top, uh, lavish gay lifestyle. And he then also becomes a con man, and one of the times he's in prison, that he gets sent to prison, he meets Philip Morris, which is played by Ewan McGregor, and they fall in love. And I will have to say that, yes, this movie is a comedy. It's, you know, over the top at times, but it is based on a true story. But the love story is is real. It is fantastic. The relationship that these two actors, especially Ewan McGregor, uh, the relationship that the two of them pull off is seriously just just magic on the screen. It's well done. I mean, I've never... It, it's difficult to really pull off um, a story about two people that are deeply in love with you or are deeply in love with each other, and one of them will go, uh, will, will go as far as to robbing banks and robbing people to provide that lover a lavish lifestyle, which is what happens whenever they get out of prison which then leads to Stephen Russell going back to prison and breaking out of prison, going back to prison, you know, breaking out of prison, because he loves Philip Morris. And it's a wonderful film. They both pull it off, but it's definitely Ewan McGregor's portrayal that just really gets you, because when it's sad, it gets sad. And it's because of Ewan McGregor's uh, line delivery and just the character that he portrays. So, um, Ewan McGregor, Underrated actor in my book. Three films were Train Spotting, Big Fish, and I Love You, Philip Morris. All right. Okay, well, then that concludes our three squared for this week. Next week, we are going to go ahead and do Favorite Underrated Actress. Um, I'm sure we'll be able to fit the uh, penis viewing, the Seattle penis viewing of Tim in the opening of the show. I, I, I feel confident that we are going to be able to do that. So... That is going to bring us to the last segment of the show, which is, of course, the movies. So, the movies this week, Actress, Only Lovers Left Alive, and Pride. Where do you want to start, sir? How about Pride? All right, Pride. This is the 2014, it's a British uh, historical film, it's comedy drama, and 
Uh, it, it is about the um, lesbian and gay activists who were raising money to help families affected by the British miners' strike of 1984. And this actually became what became known as historically as the lesbian and gay support the miners campaign um at the time the national union of mine workers were reluctant to accept the group's support because of the pr worries and they so the group decides well we'll just take our <laughs> we'll take our donations directly to a, a small town and because of that, a, a very unlikely alliance was formed. And we have uh, excellent, excellent performances by uh, Bill Nye, uh, Dominic West, uh, Freddie Fox. Goodness, uh, there's quite a few people that even if you did not necessarily know them by name, you would know them uh, by sight. And... Um, I, I I gotta say that in the vein of um, the Full Monty and other um, quirky semi-independent films, um, this is definitely something that is fun to watch. It's a good movie. I find it to be. Um, I think it's it's touching in some spots, and I think that it is not well. Touching isn't exactly the right poignant. I think poignant is is a good is good, and I think that it also kind of does highlight where we've been to a certain degree versus where we are today in a lot of the issues that pertain to the LGBT movement. But at the same time, the movie, I think, misses the mark when I feel, especially in the, let's say the third act, I feel that there are a lot of, there's a lot of crescendo, you know, because I mean, naturally the things have to build to something so that there can be a full resolution by the end of the film. And I think that the third act really suffers from them trying, from the from the filmmakers trying too hard um but other than that i still i enjoyed the performances the story is definitely good and worth telling uh i like how i i do like how it does eventually come together at the end but i just felt like again the third act when you're trying to build up all of your different uh controversies and stuff and and all of the different um Oh, good Lord, the word is escaping me at the moment. Conflicts. Hey, there we go. Uh, trying to do all these conflicts. I, I just feel that they could have elicited the same emotions and done it in a much more subtle way. And I think that that probably would have struck a better chord um, for the movie overall. But still fun. I did enjoy this movie. Three and a half stars. What do you got, Tim? Yeah, I'm right there with you. Uh, I definitely enjoyed this movie. It was fun to watch. I mean, not only was there, like, gorgeous scenery of the English countryside, uh, but it also had that classic British humor that uh, you come to know and love with these kind of movies. I mean, it's definitely a serious 
piece of history that went on during the 80s. I mean, there, there are basically two ways you could tackle this kind of story. You tell a direct, dramatic, dramified uh, version of this story, or you tell something with little zip and pizzazz. And that's what you get with this one. You get very goofy, not goofy, but very witty type of humor, very kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, little wag-of-the-nose type of humor from everyone, not just one character, but everyone is funny, and everybody plays a distinctly different character from one another, and each one has their own little either quirks or little nuances that you that you grow to enjoy throughout the movie. But the bit, the, I think the major fault this movie has is that the dramatic moments are very much dramatic moments that are kind of thrown in your face. If they were more subtle, the movie would have been better. You know, like again, if if the if the subtlety and nuances that they put towards the delivery and setup of the jokes, if they applied that to the drama, because there are a number of dramatic spots during this movie and uh and they all pertain different characters throughout the movie. It could have done in a more affecting way, and I think because of the subject matter of this film, it definitely needed those moments that reach out the screen and just grab you by the gut. Because what makes a good movie an even better movie is that if it has those kind of moments, those uh, the, those very memorable moments, I mean, because I need more than a catchy, witty piece of British dialogue that you can get from any movie like this, like The Full Monty or Kinky Boots. You know, you want you want more of that drama to really grab you and hold you, you know, pull you into what's going on, I should say. That's what I expected this movie to have. It didn't have it, but again, I'm with Matt. It is rather enjoyable. I give this one a 3.75 out of 5. Right on, right on, sir. Where do you want to go from here? How about Only Lovers Left Alive? All right. Only Lovers Left Alive 2013 Vampire Films, directed by uh, Jim uh, Yarmouche, I guess we could go with. Uh, stars Tom Hiddleston, uh, Tilda Swinton, Mia Wasikowski, Anton Yelchin, Jeffrey Wright, and John Hurt. Um, Anton, awfully good in this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, he was definitely one of my favorite characters in an otherwise bleak movie, I think, would be to say good old Chekhov checking in. Um, It takes place in Detroit. Detroit is bleak. That is their state, that is their city motto. It takes place in Tangier, too. (laughs) Briefly. (laughs) Well, you know, Tangier is the Detroit of that area <laughs> okay yeah because when people move from tangier and go to detroit they're like oh shit this is no this is no better that is that is what they would say and that is exactly how they would sound you know tangier morocco detroit michigan i see how this works okay um all right so basically we've got two the uh Two vampires, they've been together for ever and a fucking day. Uh, they're played by Tom Hiddleston as Adam, Tilda Swinton as Eve. Oh, <laughs> oh, how clever. <laughs> um, we've, uh, we've got John Hurt in here, um, 
again, and Jeffrey Wright, uh, great. Just to, I mean, honestly, this is one where you've got a lot of good actors, and surprisingly, from Anton Yelchin, uh, who is definitely, I would say, the least known of the cast. But the people who I would have expected to carry this film, and basically this is a um, kind of a slightly dystopian future-ish kind of thing, but these guys have been around for hundreds hundreds of years. Um, They get designer blood, as it were, uh, through different sources. They are, because Adam and Eve are actually living in two separate parts of the world when the movie starts and then eventually come together, whatever. Um, you know, you got blood poisoning that's going on, all that kind of stuff. It, so they have these kinds of, um, different things that they use as very interesting plot devices to help bring the, to help kind of push the film along. But while these actors are very, very good I think the director, uh, he also wrote it. I I really just think that the writing was not where it needed to be. I just kind of felt like, even though you've got some really... I'm a big fan of Tilda Swinton. I I do enjoy Tom Hiddleston. um, But you've... Instead of... Instead of kind of like this cross between desperation and depression that you kind of are supposed to get the feeling of for these characters, especially Adam's character. When you juxtapose that with the supposed vibrancy that Eve is supposed to have with the actions of why they live kind of more or less kind of why they live the way that they live. It's supposed to create everything that you need to really have this dramatic story be told, but it's just the writing for me, it's blase. And despite having good actors, it felt wooden. The whole movie, um, virtually everyone felt stilted and wooden and not in the creative way. It, and aside from Ian, I, Ian is the only one I, and I get that maybe his character is meant to be kind of like the last bit of light in the world. And I think that's why he plays it the way, why he plays it the way that he does. But, even so, I think that overall, just the writing just does not come together the way that it should. And for me, it hurts the movie immensely. I think that had the writing been tighter, had the character development been something that could have been less reliant on dialogue and cinematography and more reliant on the characters themselves, then I think that it would have presented a much stronger film overall. Um, it's not a terrible film by any stretch of imagination, but at the end of the day, for me, it's just okay. Two and a half stars. So Jim Jarmusch is a director that we haven't really talked about here on the SLS cast. So I'm going to give you just 
a minute or two of Jim Jarmusch background uh, because it definitely applies to this film, like his, his style of filmmaking. And it's definitely worth talking about for those of you who are not familiar with his work. Um, Jim Jarmusch is a student of postmodernism film, a uh, style of filmmaking, in which he represents a world, through his movies, he represents a world with that doesn't have a definite center. What I mean is that, um, right now I'm going to be quoting from my college film history book, A Short History of the Movies, written by Gerald Mast and Bruce Known. Uh, and it says this on page 630, Much postmodern art is reflexive. Much of it builds on references to popular culture, and much of it sets out to be free of any ultimate truth or final synthesis. Some of it is purely commercial, reflecting cultural conditions rather than reflecting upon them. It was a postmodern cycle when Superman went from a comic book to a TV show to a movie to a set of graphic novels and eventually to another movie, uh, which would have been Brian Singer's Superman Returns from 2006. And the Jim Jarmusch movie it mentions here is his film Coffee and Cigarettes from the year 2003, in which Coffee and Cigarettes is a film that is constructed out of an arbitrary but fixed set of turns. And that would be conversation, coffee, cigarettes, a table, and so forth. And I'm going to flip over to page 639 of this book and read you a quote from Jarmusch himself as to which he describes himself as a minimalist. He says, quote, My aesthetic is minimal. I make films about little things that happen between human beings, end quote. And the book continues, he avoids putting in too much, refusing to burden the film with extra props and dialogue and events that would get in the way of the subtleties that interest him. The peculiar, fortuitous way things happen. Very little takes place in his mundane scenes. But as they grow on you, they become very funny, steering away from what Hollywood calls action. He spends narrative time with matters that Hollywood would skip over. As he told interviewer Brock McDonald, quote, In most films, if a guy gets a phone call from his girlfriend, who says, come over? The editor will cut to him at the door. I'm more interested in the guy on the way to his girlfriend's house than I am at the other two scenes. What did he see on the train? What did he eat? I'm more interested in those things in between. End quote of Jarmusch. So yeah, and I think that's some good stuff to keep in mind as you're watching a, a Jarmusch film. Uh, he also did Bill Murray's Broken Flowers, which is kind of the same very minimalistic approach. He, like most of his movies, are based in the U.S., but there's also a quote of him saying that I like to look at U.S. from a foreigner's perspective, look at what others, like what we, you know, the American culture, you know, like we're used to all this stuff. But other people, you know, it, they, they find various moments more interesting, I think, than, than we would. Um, and so that's what I got from Only Lovers Left Ali uh, Alive. Yes, it is kind of a slower-paced movie, but there's more to it. I mean, Jarmusch likes to use single shots for a sustained period of time. 
And one shot that they use often in the movie, mainly the first, I guess, act, is Tilda Swinton walking through Tangier, through the alleyway of Tangier. And it's in slow motion. It's from her, you know, from behind, just her walking down this really cool uh, brick alleyway or stone alleyway. And, you know, it becomes a little, you know, once you're still fresh to the film, it feels a little kind of, I mean, it could be monotonous for some people that just don't like a minute, minute and a half of a sustained period of, Tilda Swinton walking, and you're watching it from behind in slow motion. But as the movie goes, you get a feel of what this movie is about, and the style, and exactly what he is trying to go for and achieve. I liked it. I liked it a little bit more than Matt. Actually, a lot more than Matt. Um, I give this movie 4.25 out of 5. Alright, well then, last but not least, that leaves us with Actress. Um... Starring Brandy Bure, um, or Burr, I can't remember how they say it, whatever, I don't know, it's not important. Um, so this is a chick who had a recurring role on The Wire back in the day. She decides to take some time off, raise a family, and then decides now it's time to come back to being an actress. And as she tries to get her career back off the ground, she is watching her personal life go to hell in a fucking handbasket. Now, um... This movie is definitely enjoyed by um, critics and audiences alike. This is supposed to be some form or fashion of a documentary. And I... The only thing that's documentary... Truly a documentary about it is that it's real people. Outside of that, it just kind of seems to be a... um, I don't vain is not the right word because I think it, it she does go into this project with an with something that most people don't understand and don't have a way in and kind of giving you an idea of fame relative to the role relative to time away from the camera uh, and and how fleeting it is and and also just how hard it is to to get work in in LA even if you have a resume so I, I can kind of get that concept behind it. But while I won't say that it was vain, I will say this project seems to me to be entirely self-absorbed and uh, uses all sorts of cinematic tricks, uh, think like Virunga, um, you know, stuff like that, where, where it's using different kinds of cinematography and different kinds of uh, camera tricks and stuff like that to embellish this situation that she finds herself in. And I didn't like it. I'm sorry. I, I did not like it. I, I get that there is truth to this and I get that you're, you are kind of seeing different kinds of struggles. And so I can understand why there are people and more than me. I'm definitely in the minority on this. Um, I can see why people would look at that and enjoy it. And I can see how um, there have been critics who look at certain aspects of it, even the fantastical um, elements that have been added to this and can enjoy it. But for me, it just seems like a, I don't know, a couple of hours or well, hour and a half really of, you know, look at me, oh, woe is me, oh, look at this, oh, woe is this, um, and, oh, let's make it pretty, quick, oh, let's make it pretty. 
I didn't like it. I'm sorry. I don't hate it, but I really didn't like it. I recognize that people will find value with it, but this one is not for everybody. It's for the vast majority probably, but not for everybody. One and a half stars. Go ahead, Tim. What, you know, musical background do we have for this one? What? Musical bat like the bathtub running or no no just like you know the the act the, the director how you were explaining the background of the director actually I do have background on this one see oh look yay now here's how why you should like it all right so this movie yes it's a documentary but it skirts a fine line there's a fine line between documentary and cinema verite now with cinema verite. In short, it's basically somebody picked up a camera, whatever they had, and they went out to make a documentary-esque type of feature. It's not your standard sit down and interview this person. It's like more of an art house film, but yet it's still a documentary. Now, from this book I have, A Short History of the Movies, written by Gerald Mast and Bruce Noem. Cinema Verte is described in this book as film truth, it's French for Kino Pravada, or direct cinema, in which the camera is an acknowledged element of the scene it records. Kino Pravada is a word that, was, that came about in 1918 by this filmmaker, or an early filmmaker, named Ziga Vertov, who, according to this book, made newsreels by assembling the bits of film sent to him by, traveling cam- by a traveling cameraman, in which the people and the activities of the new Soviet Union were recorded. In 1922, Veritov began shooting, film, and expanding the experiments both in montage and in ways to capture unstaged reality, which he called Life Unawares. He named the new series Kino Pravada, as if it were the film version of the newspaper Pravada, which means truth. Veritov's work led him to the genre of the compilation film in which a movie is created out of found footage, the candid camera in which people are photographed without being asked and without at first being aware of any camera, so they have no opportunity to pose or to, be, or to behave in an unnatural manner. And um, if you really want to look at the history, there's also a guy named Robert Flattery who was credited as being one of the very first documentary filmmakers. He did a movie called Nanook of the North, which came out in 1922. The same time as Ziga Veritov was out and about as well, so I guess they both can share that title. And really, that's backstory as... uh, a little bit of backstory as to what they were trying to achieve with this film. At least that's what it... to me, that's what it... me and other people, because I read up on it as well, and everybody definitely... or a number of other people definitely caught on the cinema verte vibes that this film was offering. But, yes, it's beautiful to watch at times. It's very, maybe surreal. I mean, it's it was kind of surreal, surreal watching how they were capturing this kind of distorted reality in a way, which was, to me, very entertaining. However, the biggest problem with this film is that, yes, it is in its own way well-made, beautifully made even. It's an interesting story and definitely concept, but your attention is held for about 70% of the movie. In the last 30 minutes, you start to wonder, hey, without the cinema verte element and the stylization that it, you know, that, it, that it has, I don't think this film would have been as intriguing to watch. 
Because the woman herself, Brandy Burr, isn't all that interesting of a person. And the story alone, without the, I don't want to call it fluff, but without the stylization, the story itself really isn't that engrossing, you know? This girl, this woman, had a little bit of success on a very popular show. She quit to raise kids, and now she's half-heartedly kind of attempting to get back in the game. At the same time, her relationship is kind of failing, yet the relationship is failing because she kind of cheated on him. And so it's kind of like, I can see why this is happening. <laughs> you know, I mean, that you start, and it's, you start definitely realizing the, the faults that this movie has without the glitz and the glamour that is tacked onto it. However, with saying that, I think the movie is worth watching, especially for those of you that are interested in cinema verite. Uh, so I give this one 3.5 out of 5. It's interesting. I'll give it that. Alrighty. Well, then that brings us to the end. All right, so we got, uh, basically, it ter- I guess we're just doing all of these movies now. So this is an eight-week segment. Is that what's up? We're doing oh, all God. these wine, movies. Wine, wine, wine. I don't like BuzzFeed, bro. Why? I'm, I don't, I'm not going to lie. I'm not gonna I don't, lie. I don't like either. BuzzFeed. I don't either, but these movies are worth watching. We yeah. can lie and oh, say... Wow, that, we haven't had, I have not had a five-star movie all year. These movies must be great. Yes, it's one and a half, two and a half, two point seven five. That can be a, three and a cuddly big teddy bear, but he can also be a cynical bastard at times. Yes, yes, I can. All right, so uh, we're now doing uh, a girl walks home alone at night, skeleton twins, and obvious child. All of these are VOD and rental. That's right, no free ride this time, folks. And yes, so that does bring us to the spiel, though, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, well, at least for the intros, uh, has been provided to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we, of course, are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can also get aboard the Information Superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, if that is your thing. And, of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, where we will be anxiously awaiting the Seattle penile viewing of Tim, this is Matt, saying that thanks to Steve Martin, I get to say this. Don't have sex, man. It leads to kissing, and pretty soon you have to start talking to them. And I am probably going to forget, purposely forget the Seattle penile story for next week. <laughs> and that, that's it. That, that's it. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.